If you casually ask a friend, can I use the talcum powder on my genitals? They'll give you an answer. Hi, I'm Andy. And I'm Roger. And welcome to The Middle, where we try to have thoughtful conversations about awkward topics on our search to find the middle. announced the death of the majesty queen elizabeth ii i act as if god exists put your masks on how dare you you have stolen my dreams my childhood with your empty words roger nick how you going hello hey andy how you doing so today we're very excited to have a guest on uh, nick is an economist within the australian government he's also spent time in academia looking at tax and transfer policy design and implementation. He loves to look at policy problems, particularly those at the intersection of technology, regulation, behavioural science and economics. We've asked Nick today to join us on the podcast to discuss AI, including the impact of large language models such as ChatGPT. Uh, Thank you for joining us, Nick, and uh, welcome to The Middle. Pleasure to be on the show. So, Nick, just before we get into it, did you want to briefly introduce yourself, your background, and, um, yeah, why we're here today to talk about AI? Thanks, Andy. Thanks, Roger. Once again, thanks for inviting me on the pod. My background, I'm a trained economist. I've spent a big chunk of my life working with data, but I've also dabbled into behavioral economics, behavioral science, psychology. I think ChatGPT fundamentally is a transformative technology where these multi-domains intersect that in a way could alter the landscape for various domains. And it's that intersection that's quite fascinating. Thanks for that, Nick. And I'm sure we'll discuss some of that today. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on, Nick. Andy and I usually start off the show with a little bit of um, a little bit of banter and all the talking about our week. And I thought I'd um, tell maybe a little bit of a story to loosen us up. And like all of my good stories, they involve me in compromising positions. In my old building at work, I had a gym. And actually, it's a strange thing because normally in everyday life, you see your colleagues dressed in work attire. But for a s- small portion of your day, you um, you see them naked. And so it, it becomes kind of a weird thing, right? So we had this kind of play out and there was a, a small locker room at the bottom of the building. And for a long time, I noticed in the men's locker room, I started seeing these kind of rings of powder, these rings of white powder on the tiles where everyone was getting changed outside their lockers. And it started to happen over and over again, just seeing, you know, these couple of rings. And I just thought to myself, like, what in the world? is this white powder doing on the floor? And so I looked down to kind of see what it was. And at the exact time as I bent down, I got the most heinous foot cramp. And I like lurched down in pain and my towel fell off. And it was really embarrassing, obviously. Like, And then at the ex- exact same moment, I found out the horror of what was actually making the talcum powder ring. One of our older colleagues came over, dropped his towel, and then he reached into his locker and he pulled out the biggest can of talcum powder I've ever seen and threw it up against his genitals and then put his underwear on. But I was just like, oh, that's why every time this guy does it, he makes a ring when he's talcum powdering his junk. And it got me thinking, is, am I missing a beat here? And is that actually the way to go? Has anyone had any experience with uh, this phenomenon of dry powdering your junk? Oh, uh, this, is, this is a very interesting story. I haven't heard that one before. But uh, um, yeah, look, I think, uh, um, you know, I'm, I'm one of those uh, idiots who, who tend to take things a little bit too seriously. So even if I'm kind of confronted with a 
funny story. I try to find a deeper meaning behind it for some reason, <laughs> which just spoils the fun. And like everyone around me absolutely hates me for that. And my first thought was, were you still in pain when you had that revelation? Or did your brain suddenly, you know, completely forgot the pain because you had this amazing view in front of you, <laughs> if you want to call it that? Or was it some, the truth was somewhere in the middle where you were still in pain, but you know, you also kind of were glad that you finally got the answer to that problem. In pain, definitely. <laughs> um, bringing them back to, to the episode, I just upgraded my subscription to ChatGPT and I asked, is talcum powdering your genitals a good practice? And um, ChatGPT told me, no, talcum powder is not recommended for the use on the genitals. There is some evidence to suggest that talcum powder use in the genital area may increase the risk is of ovarian cancer in women and testicular cancer in men. Talcum powder can also cause irritation, dryness, and other skin problems. If you are experiencing discomfort or irritation in the genital areas, it is best to consult a healthcare professional for the advice and best course of treatment. There you go. See, it's taken all taken all the fun out of it now. We we know too much now. Exactly, and and you know, like it's it's the touch at the end which is just so cringeworthy, you know. It's, it's, it's kind of like those disclaimers that you see and hear on TV all the time, you know, in a robotic voice sometimes. Sorry to interrupt the episode. If you're enjoying our content, make sure to hit subscribe on your preferred podcast app so you never miss an episode. Let your friends know about us. Your support means a lot and word of mouth really helps. A great way to share with your friends is to comment, engage, like and share some of our social media posts. We're on all major platforms and you can find our links in our show notes or our website www.themiddle.site. And guess what? We've got even more for you. We're building a subscriber email list so we can give access to content that you can't get any other way. Check our show notes to find out how to get added to our subscriber list or visit our website at www.themiddle.site. Thank you. And we'll return you now to the episode. You know, I, I kind of, in this scenario, put myself in the mind of this old man. He's been talcum powdering his balls regularly after workout, probably for his whole life, right? How would you use ChatGPT to convince him otherwise? Like, how do you actually change someone's mind? Isn't like half the problem though, or in fact, 99% of the problem precisely that it's a computer. But, you know, in a lot of instances, people trust machines more than humans. And one of the easiest examples that you can think of, which you'll probably experience yourself, or at least I have multiple times, is when Google Maps tries to give me directions. And I know for a fact, for some reason, that if I take the shortcut, I'll get there faster. But I tend to override my own instinct and assume that the machine might know better it's picked up the traffic signals or something. So let me just follow that, right? And so, and this is one of the things where people kind of concede to the machines just because they think that they're probably a little bit smarter than them. A place I used to live at, um, there was this young lady driving a car and she ended up driving into a ditch just outside the house. And when I say a ditch, like I mean a, like a, a reasonable sized ditch. <laughs> And it turns out the reason she drove into the ditch was that her GPS like had the road going straight. But what made it like this story even worse is that she calls some doofus to come and help her. He gets in and he tries to reverse it up the hill, but he just floors the accelerator to try and like get some traction to reverse it out, keeps flooring it, flooring it. it nothing's happening, right? 
So all he's doing is creating all this friction, all this heat, and so then the car catches on fire. <laughs> you know, it'd be even better, Andy, if then you know her Google Maps said, "Please divert this route. It has been an accident." <laughs> but you know, um, Nick, it's a really good point about conceding to uh, you know digital authority. I remember like driving with my dad or wherever. He would never trust the GPS. Like he would, he would just never do it. It was always wrong. He'd always know better. And it's only, I guess as things have come to prominence around Google Maps and, and other things like that, then now people have that trust that it is very accurate. And I wonder somehow if it's a generational thing too, that younger people are more inclined to respect the authority of these big tech companies. And then what that then does to your mindset of not questioning things, right? So what if I typed into chat GPT for, is telcom powdering your genitals a good practice? I said, yes, absolutely. You should do it twice a day. You know, now I'm in a predicament because I don't want to do that, but Maybe I do concede. Maybe I think actually it's going to help me and I start doing it. And yeah. I think that that's a interesting part around what responsibility does a user have when they start to leverage these tools and what can you you know rely on? Yeah, look, that's a very good question. And I guess um, squeeze back to your example about uh, how, you know, how... how Maybe uh, maybe we but, can get off the um the tack and paddle and the balls example and move to no, more. No, I, I was using the Google. <laughs> I, oh using, yeah, you met the, the GPS. Okay. Yeah, yeah I was using the GPS example. So <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, your technology is kind of complementing or aiding your decisions. So in behavioral science, we say that you moved away from a systems to thinking, which is where you have to stop and think about something a bit more deeply, to a system one thinking where you've kind of gone on autopilot. So the trust bit is there, but it's not necessarily that now. It's more the fact that you've now internalized the idea over time with the repeated interactions with the technology that I'll have to trust this. It's mostly right, even though it's not 100% mm. right. It's mostly right. So I'm going to trust it as opposed to my gut instincts or you know, taking the time to actually think through the fact that I'm going on a totally different road and I know that's the wrong path where the GPS is taking me, but I'm still going to follow through because I'm just like my autopilot, my system one is overriding my systems two thinking. Just reflecting on being in Ubers, right? Uber vehicles. And one of the aspects of it, which is interesting as a user is that you get into the car and you've got your destination because you've, you've put it in the app before you even get in the car. And the driver starts driving this really bizarro way that you would never go. Like, you know, your local neighborhood, you know... No, no. Why? Why would you possibly go that street? That's the most stupid thing. But you know, the app is is giving the Uber driver, you know, the instructions on where to drive, and and the Uber driver is not even thinking; they're just mindlessly driving, and you know, where where the their phone tells them to. Yeah. And if you tell the driver, "Hey, don't go that way. That way is like ridiculously stupid. Like go this other way." They they're kind of, oh, I don't know. But I think to your point, Nick, it's kind of like the Uber driver is they've turned off their brain and. They're just completely now reliant on what the app's telling them to do. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, so today we're talking about AI and a lot of us have been caught up in the novelty of chat GPT. I think it's probably a good time to maybe put on the table some foundation concepts in terms of how do these models even work? Like where, where do they get the information from? How do they know to tell you whether to put talcum powder on your balls or not? Uh, like, <laughs> you know... <laughs> I think you promised that you're not going to use that, that example. <laughs> yeah. Before yeah. we go, you know what it just reminds me sometimes? Like you've just spoken the trust now. It reminds me of that movie, um, Anchorman, where Ron Burgundy always read 
what's on the teleprompter, no matter what it says, right? Like it doesn't, <laughs> he just reads it. And I just worry sometimes like as, as a human species, are we just going to be reading the teleprompter without even doing it? You know, everyone's simultaneously talcum powdering their balls for no reason. Um, <laughs> but anyway, let's get back to the script. I got us into this mess. Let's get out. Uh, sure. All right. Where to start? I think there's a bit to unpack, especially for those who are listening and who've probably got no background. They've just picked up a tool that they started interacting with and they're amazed by its capabilities or sometimes, you know, totally weirded out. How does it work? Yes. So what underpins ChatGPT is a deep learning algorithm, but at its most fundamental level, an artificial intelligence is just a massive prediction engine. And you know, people have different definitions, but this is how I make sense of it. And its underlying foundation of that massive prediction engine is just simple statistics. It's the same old statistical model, and believe it or not, the simple regression technique is sometimes one of the most effective machine learning models. So people get confused between what's a machine learning model, what's AI, and what's deep learning. So AI is basically, the, if you think about like a, a Venn diagram, you know, AI is the, the superset. It encompasses all of the uh, computation techniques that have come out in, in the last uh, uh, 20 odd years or so. Machine learning is a subset of AI. So it's just one type of AI. Deep learning is then a subset of machine learning. It's like the next level of machine learning. But just going back to what machine learning is, because that's where you start. Um, the simple regression technique that a lot of us have probably studied studied in Stats 101 in a school or uni. Um, the simple regression model is actually one of the most effective machine learning models. And people are often surprised by that. So just Nick, for, for anyone who's, you know, regression analysis, I mean, this is essentially in layman's term is is looking at the relationships between two or more sets of data, I guess. Yeah, that's correct. So, you know, you know, like a simple regression, you're basically looking at, as an example, you're trying to figure out the impact of an increase in supply on house prices. So, you know, an increase in the stock, you take the stock as one variable and you're trying to see how that's actually going to change house prices. And then, as you said, you're trying to find a correlation between the two. Essentially, what we're doing is you're basically trying to make some inference about how good the variable that you've picked up, the stock of housing, is in predicting the house price. But essentially, at the most basic level, you're trying to identify a relation between the two variables. So in terms of large language models like ChatGPT, I mean, this is going to be a gross oversimplification, but it's almost like, okay, the inputs are talcum powder, balls, good idea. And the system is trying to ascertain what the what the answer should be. And there's a I guess there's two components to it. One is what, how should I form this, formulate the sentence, you know, mimicking human language, applying the, well, what kind of words do, you know, people commonly use, but it's not just the language side of it. It's also, well, what's the actual right answer? So let's say, you know, on average, you have a divergence of views on that particular question. It's, it's, it's basically looking at all of the different data sets that's been inputted into the model and it's trying to work out a combination of when, when that question gets asked, probabilistically speaking, using these, you know, a broadly a statistical approach, which answer is, first of all, most likely correct based on all of the inputs. But then not only that, but what would be the right framing of, of words to respond to that question? So, I mean, that's a, a gross oversimplification, but it's basically harvesting the data from whether it's the whole of the internet or, or whatever the input sources are to prop up the answer. Is that a, are there any great sort of 
mistakes in that analysis? Yeah, look, really the machines are not that smart. Yeah, It's not really learning grammar. It's just learning the statistical connections between two words to process what was asked of it. And then it turns that attention network onto itself to create a response and uses the same probabilities to calculate the most likely word to respond. So the first word is the, for example. It then uses the association or the mapping it had created from your original prompt to then use that to predict the next word after the. I mean, and it's got three different modes, creator, precise, and I think an intermediate mode, something like that, right? Mm, yes. um, so the creator mode is different because in the creator mode, it actually applies some randomization. So it's not going to follow the logic rule completely. It just sometimes randomly pick up, picks up something different. And that's why it can hallucinate as well, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah. In a creator mode. Um, I don't know if you've heard of Dali 2 or Mid Journey or Stable Diffusion that are making these unrealistic, you know, images. It's like the Pope in a in a puffer jacket, which is pretty hard to believe. I was, you know, or Damn, Donald I think Trump. I bought that original painting. They fooled me. <laughs> Non-fungible token, right? Roger? <laughs> yeah. So Stable Diffusion, Mid Journey, Dali 2, they're also deep learning models. In fact, they're better than a chat GPT model, if I can say that, because they've been around for a lot longer. Um, they came out a lot earlier. So Nick, it really is about that, you know, putting a thousand monkeys in a room, pumping out yeah. everything. They just have a really good quality control editor sitting over the top to yeah, bring it to life. that's pretty much it, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, it, you know, the important thing is that, as I mentioned, the output is not entirely predictable because it can apply some randomization. And this is where it's interesting because whatever association it has picked up, sometimes it's impossible to tell. Like, you can't explain it. It can get emergent properties. So emergent properties are like, as a classic example where I think the head of Google was mentioned that they never trained Lambda, their large language model, to, like, they didn't have Bengali in their training data set. But Lambda was able to respond and talk in Bengali without even having that information in this data set. How it drew out those associations? Where it got the information from? Because obviously it uses the whole of the data available on the internet. It scraped it. But it was never trained on learning Bengali. But it picked it up. So there's some emergent properties that you don't actually mm -hmm. know. Most of it is predictable because you know you've trained it on this bit of information. You've taken out the bias. You've given it a high quality data set. But then there are these emergent properties that come from when you turn it into a creative mode, we introduce some randomization. Yeah. And it just makes these miraculous kind of understanding, which is completely out of the blue. Nick, you know, um, it's it's quite interesting you say that because when I was um, playing around with ChatGPT just today, I asked it to actually make me something a little bit creative for a, a piece of prose. And as it was typing it out on the prompt, I was like, oh, this is gold dust. But then something happened where the prompt failed and the server connection failed. And I was like, no, because no two answers, responses are exactly the same. And once you lose it, it's gone. And it got me really thinking that it is like speaking to someone from across the hall. It's a moment in time, it's fleeting, and it may never be recreated in exactly the same manner ever again. And so if you lose that prompt and it doesn't fully respond to you and you have a server error, it's gone. And yes, you can ask it the same question, but it won't be the same response. Um, and that was that was the annoying thing for me. If you've got a clear mode on, then yes the randomization could change the response. But you know, the thing is, the, the the emergent properties that I was mentioning, as you said, if you give it the same question, it would not give you the same response. In a similar fashion, if you give it a slightly different prompt, it could act as a trigger to create a new emergent property. You could design a prompt, Roger, that could make ChatGPT 
do something that it wasn't trained on. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure it made up that talking about a thing on the spot because it didn't know how to respond, <laughs> to be honest, you know. Well, who's the ultimate creator, you or ChatGPT? I would say probably yeah. you, right? Well, as, as we know, Andy, about this podcast, okay. um, it's about asking the right questions, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, some of this stuff underscores, the, you know, your earlier point around, you know, we kind of understand sort of how they work, but we don't kind of understand how they work. So we set the broad parameters and, and we, we kind of know the framework of how it's doing its its thing. But, mm-hmm. you know, uh, we, we once we let it loose, it, it, we don't really understand, you know, how it comes to its answers. But one comment um, I was just going to make around, you know, it's it's this fleeting thought in the hall and you lose the sort of the, the magic. Now, obviously, there's a different process to get to the outcome as what humans use. But like, essentially, when you think about like how we learn to to firstly read and then you know, as we get a bit older, we can start to write and we might refine our craft. And I mean, aren't humans kind of doing the same thing, maybe in a different way, but aren't we kind of doing the same thing in terms of replicating things we read and, and writing and, and, and emulating that in a, in, in a similar way? I mean, the processing that goes on within our brain is different. But yeah, I mean, like, it, that's why, you know, when you, you read things written by humans, sometimes, you know, they, they can fall into you know, repetitive tropes, you yeah. know, in, in the same way as we speak, you know, I'm sure we'll use lots of filler words like, um, you knows and likes and ums and ahs and all of that sort of stuff. Isn't the AI doing the same thing, really? It's such a strange thing, you know, that is just another primate, right? Like in that primate example, if, if you get a chimpanzee that comes from a particular group and has a really amazing way of, say, opening a coconut using this tool, the chimpanzee that has this knowledge of how to do it better and more efficiently will revert to the group's way of doing it because it's more important to that chimpanzee to fit in the group, be accepted by the group, than prove that they have a, have a better way of doing things. And I feel like sometimes AI can be caught up in the same thing. They're learning from us, right? It is more important for an AI to fit in and be accepted by humans by maybe speaking to them in their language or being more relatable than to be perfectly right all the time because they also depend on us for their existence. And so that's like a interesting piece on this that actually if you want to make an AI and a language more digestible, it has to be more human. And what comes with being more human is potentially not always right. Well, isn't that creative mode? Isn't it like that it, rather than use, you know, the most common word that would be used in that setting, that it'll use the 150th most common word used in that, you know, just to be a little bit different, right? Yeah, exactly. The way they pick up the next word after the next word after the next word is based on probability. So, you know, normally they'll pick up one word that's supposed to be the most likely to come after the previous word. But in a creative mode, it might not. It might pick something with a low probability. But the example that you were giving me, Roger, that, that group thinking or the, the you know uh, the herd mentality, is just, it is part of our DNA in the sense that we've always kind of, you know, as, as homo sapiens, we're vulnerable, right? So we always relied on the strength of the group to survive. But on the same token, we always had that one black sheep or the loose cannon, you know, who'd kind of go out of his, his, his or her way to do something different and then come up with a more innovative way of actually helping the whole group survive, right? And that's how a lot of the evolutionary knowledge came from. So just going back to the example, it could be the same Homo sapien who was in another context quite compliant and stuck with the herd behavior. But in a different context, it could have potentially put on his or her career mode on and did something different, yeah. right? So 
but ultimately it's the same same primate same same monkey or we want to call it that so i think chat gpd in a way i mean we're forcing it to choose a creator or a precise mode but essentially it's doing the same thing you know in a precise mode it could be politically correct right but in in a creator mode and if you give it reasonable prompts it could turn completely racist right but ultimately it's looking at some sort of unpredictable way and humans yeah. are you know similarly unpredictable um that was that was a great kind of basis for the the mechanisms behind chat gpt the thing that i find most disappointing is that it always comes back to bloody stats 101 the most boring subject but everything is underpinned by it um i don't know why stats teachers are always uh, so dry but i did have a good one when i was going through my um my learning and um when we first came into the room they had the x and y axis and on one it was the number of churches and on the other it was the number of strip clubs and they were positively correlated. So where you find more churches, you find more strip clubs. And uh, it was just obviously enforcing this idea of correlation does not mean causation. But, you know, if you do want to look for strip clubs, you know, look for churches, you probably will be onto a good thing. I'm not so sure about that um, particular <laughs> example. I think it, there might be something in that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a classic spurious correlation, right? Yeah. Well, uh, not not it, surrounding the Vatican, it isn't. You don't, you don't, you don't know, Andy. <laughs> they're, they're in the canals. Okay, <laughs> let's move on. What is ChatGPT going to mean for applications in the future? Are we doomed to all have to bow down towards this new technology? Will it displace a whole part of the workforce? What does it actually mean for our, for jobs in the future? The economic impacts of ChatGPT. There hasn't been a lot of work done yet. I'm sure people are, you know, racing to churn out academic papers on how this is going to have an impact uh, on the broader economy. And I mean, ultimately, we've got to say we don't know the answer, right? But in 2022, this fascinating paper by an MIT economist, David Otter, he wrote a paper where the, the authors found that 60% of workers that are today employed in occupations, those occupations did not exist in 1940, which kind of implied that around 85% of employment growth over the last 80 odd years or so is actually driven by the technology creating new positions. So yes, there's a possibility that this technology is quite disruptive, you know, and, and a lot of people have actually said that this could be the next general purpose technology uh, in the likes of steam engine or uh, automobile or electricity for that matter. So it could be one of those general purpose technology that has an application into every field or every occupation that you can imagine that currently exists and could potentially create new ones as well. So if it's that kind of significant, uh, let's just suppose it is for a second, then what are the implications? So there could be a fundamental restructure. And I guess you got to think about it, obviously, from both short, medium and long-term perspective. Goldman Sachs put out a paper, I think last month, I wouldn't call it rough, preliminary kind of analysis of how it's going to impact the job market. They talked about two-thirds of the occupations are exposed to some degree, and ChatGPT or a similar bot can do between a quarter and half of their workload. So not completely, but it can do almost half of their workload. So basically, like you guys are saying, someone's going to lose 50% or more, the, more of their daily workload to a bot. And what does that mean? They might not have a job in a lot of cases. But Goldman Sachs kind of says in their paper, a lot of that is desk-bound jobs. So they do not include in their analysis robotics. So robots actually substituting for people. The thing that's different about AI, or, or certainly as ChatGPT has kind of underscored, is that maybe pre-ChatGPT, the conversation around automation and things like that, there was this 
sort of view that, well, if you have a routine job, routine uh-huh. jobs are the kinds of jobs which can be automated and are at threat from technology and new, new technology that can displace those jobs. But I think what's different about AI, particularly chat GPT, it's, it's actually now the non-routine jobs, the ones that involve, you know, people having to come up with answers to things which can't be programmed, aren't, aren't really confined to an if then answer. So, and, and this is really what's unique about it and thinking of maybe service jobs. I mean, services, it's the biggest employer, right? In, in usually in advanced economies. So, with so many service jobs which require that sort of interpersonal connection, like these are now on the table for technological displacement. But I guess, and I'm not sure if this is something touched on in the papers that, that you're referring to, but whenever jobs get displaced by technology, what happens is, sure, there might be a short-run effect. That job ceases to exist, but it frees up essentially skilled labor to go to somewhere else in the economy where they actually can add value. Now, it might be for some individual worker, it might be that that they are worse off. Maybe the thing that they like, you know, thinking about sign writers, for example, pre-computers, right? If they had no other sort of ability to retrain and reskill. Um, they're made worse off by um, you know computers that can design better graphics than 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 what they can. Andy, there's still and- a thriving sign market in the in hospitals in Australia. <laughs> Thank you very much. Hipster areas as well, I think. But yeah, I mean, like that individual might be worse off, but the fact that we don't train new sign writers, but we instead train you know like younger people coming to the into the workforce, that we're not training them to do these obsolete professions we're training them to do different things and and maybe the young person that that would have gone into you know the job that you know has now been displaced by chat gpt or it's um it's it's future variants they will just do the thing that, that where you know so so there's this is how it kind of works you know and uh, that's probably why we don't need to be quite so fearful yeah and look that's that there is a reason for optimism i agree that short to medium term pain can bring around lasting changes so you know, how do we actually manage that transition? The short to medium term will determine how good those new innovations built on top of ChatGPT or, you know, its variants would either transform and benefit society or, you know, create a dystopian future. So Nick and Andy, um, I'd like to kind of interject here and, and, and lay out a little bit of uh, searching for the middle musings here. At my work, we've been using chatbots for quite a while now. I remember when we first embarked on this many years ago, way before uh, ChatGPT, there was a white paper that came out provocatively labeled digital slavery, because essentially it's owning almost an employee that works around the clock that you own and and um, that you then gain all the benefits from. One thing that always comes up was, should these autonomous resources and robots in the future be taxed? So what I'm interested in is, you know, and, and to offset some of these social change and displacements that we're talking about, where is the middle on this subject of one end being they're definitely going to be taxed and they're going to be used to offset and slow down innovation and all these other things versus a more free market that we've been discussing? So I think, uh, yeah, I, I remember reading that, that article as well, I think back in the 2017, 2018, when they started talking about, you know, taxing robots. By the way, and- we already do tax robots through- That's correct. I was, just gonna, yeah, I was just going to say that. So yeah, you're right. It's a form of capital. How it's defined has thrown a few curveballs in coming up with a good way of taxing them. But I think the problem there is a lot of these technologies are intangible. And 
intangible assets are notoriously difficult to tax unless you have a global agreement on how you would tax them you know something like the OECD which is a group of wealthy countries they've come up with the uh, you know something called a base inversion and profit shifting regime where they've identified you know some of the tax loopholes using intangibles and others as well you know clever accounting shenanigans and and found uh, a way for countries to come to you know some sort of agreement around things like a minimum tax threshold that everyone has to charge like a base level of tax uh, tax so you stop the race to the bottom but also what and how you can tax it so i don't think in the current framework the taxation regime is currently designed it may or may not be able to keep up to some of the changes that are coming through in this domain not to get too theoretical here but like our current tax system in you know most countries but you know certainly in Australia is basically the principle is if you earn a labor income if your income's derived from work you know you're actually going doing your 35 40 hours a week whatever your job is that income gets treated a certain way where it gets taxed you know according to your know, progressive tax system but if your your income is wholly derived from capital let's say 100% of your income is is just because you've got investments or wealth you actually pay more tax because it gets taxed not only in the sense that companies pay company tax, right? But then they, then it gets taxed through the income tax system with the same progressive income tax arrangements. So, um, and there's probably, you know, a few other um, features in there around um, dividend imputation and things like that. But broadly speaking, that's the model and that's recognition that if you're earning money because you just happen to own assets which earn on your behalf, that it's fairer to to charge a high rate of tax. So maybe that's, that is true for for AI and, and all of that. But I guess um, should we have some extra tax? Should we treat it you know, differently to other forms of capital? I, I probably think we should because that's a pretty big disincentive to their application. I mean, they're fundamentally beneficial technologies. Now we can have another conversation about the ethics and, you know, are they are we going to get this is all going to get taken over by by these technologies. But to the extent that we save ourselves effort and 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 labor and and rather than having to spend money on hiring a person to do what's essentially something that can be done by a machine that's a good thing for us we we benefit from that yeah so look i mean one point that i did want to bring in and and this this goes back to you know um what i was talking about with the previous uh, general purpose technologies was that a good or heavy sometimes but mostly a good regulatory regime which i wouldn't say controlled but kind of was able to guide or in some cases completely ban in other cases you know imposed regulation around basic things like safety fairness like if you ask most people fairness is one of their key demands in any transaction or a process so the heavy regulation from the 1950s onwards to 1980s was actually a period of great innovation as well you know uh for, for a lot of reasons it was considered to be the golden age for innovation so i don't necessarily agree that if you actually tax it it's you're going to curb innovation and a few people who either by luck or by association are able to extract all the rents from those technologies then I mean, from their perspective the rest of the society can go to hell doesn't need to exist because the machines can do all the jobs. So, if is that is that what we want, right? But we'll still need massagists and talcum powder therapists, won't we? It's 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 about the general conditions for everyone. I mean, one of the things that they say about Amazon, for example, 
is that Amazon created these really high-level jobs at the top. But then this really low-scale, low-level jobs at the bottom. And essentially, that's what they call the hollowing out of the middle class, right? And that's not, I guess, optimal conditions for a healthy society. So ultimately, what I'm trying to say is innovation tends to thrive more optimally in a society that's regulated. Now, you can decide on the level of regulation, but light touch regulation is not the answer. But like, but, but I, I think, you know, like these technologies, they're like emerging technologies. And at a philosophical level, I think it's fair to say, well, you know, we, we really need to watch this and be, and be alert to this and, and be responsive. But it's the Petri dish phase of, of this technology. I mean, it really is because whilst ChatGPT is impressive, we don't know what the implications are. No one, no one does. And no, that's true. That's true. But on the same token, I'll argue that this is actually when it's in that Petri dish stage, this is the right time to get ahead and find how you can best regulate it based on the information that you have right now. But we don't even know what the regulatory objectives are, right? Like if you want to regulate yep. it, presumably you have an, a, a, an objective, right? But or you have evidence of some problem, but but that's lacking. Like it's... Oh, look, it's, I mean, but, yeah. but there's certain principles that we can all agree on. So, you know, you can... And this is where AI ethics comes into play. I mean, there, there always got to be some principles that I think... And you can tell me if you don't agree with any of those, but things like privacy safety, reliability. Can we explain what it's doing? Is the decision that the algorithm's making, what are the transparency or the governance features of that? Can we, can we interpret some of those choices it's making? Where is the accountability and fairness? I mean, like, okay, if you don't necessarily agree with those principles at a broader level, then you, you probably got a point. But, but, but isn't you, some of that, you know, in the application of the technology? So it's not so much regulating the technology itself, it's, it's how you apply it. So for example, just to take recruitment, right? You might have a, an overarching policy framework that says, you know, you, you should not unfairly discriminate people in, through a recruitment process, right? Like race, gender, religion, those sorts of things, right? And let's say a company comes up with a novel application of of, the, of these systems and says, oh, I'm going to use this to do my screening. And it turns out that it, you know it, the the AI systems are working in a manner that that contravenes that the anti-discrimination obligations of a company, then then that's how you deal with it. You deal with it at, at that level, you know, because I, I suppose maybe, you but know, I mean, a concern would be that- If the discrimination is baked in the actual Yes, but, but that's the, the problem, right? If you were to regulate that these systems should not be discriminatory, right? The, the, the people who design and come up with and innovate it probably wouldn't even know how to do that because there'd be ways that they're discriminatory that they can't even foresee, right? There's no button to press, you know, we'll, we'll untick the discriminate button in the settings, you know, that, that, that such a button doesn't exist, right? It's in the design of it and, then, and these things happen in kind of unanticipated ways. Yeah, no, that's true. But I mean, that's exactly what I'm saying. Right now, even though the genie is out of the bottle, right now is the time to actually come up with some of those broader principles that would normally apply. And of course, there would be multiple ways of actually curbing some of the AI's nasty tendencies. But if you don't start now, we will be in a, we're probably in the same phase where the early internet was, you know, back in the 1990s. Oh, but that was That's, the best time on the internet. No, that was a lost opportunity. <laughs> that was a lost opportunity because some of the broader implications were where it ended up or what happened, you know, we've only just started 
realizing now. I think social media is probably a good example of that. Um, Exactly, exactly. And and that's what I'm talking about. It's like we knew that they, they had the potential to bring about massive change, but we did not consider how we're going to regulate them until it started, you know, having real lasting damage. But I suppose, I I was just going to say with the the social media example, I don't think anyone in, in, let's say, 2008 or 2010 or whatever year you want to pick would know what the policy interventions you need in 2008 or 2010 needed to be to stop Donald Trump from being elected or whatever pernicious thing that you might blame social media on, right? They, they, it wouldn't have been apparent and evident at that time. I kind of take it in a, um, in this idea of when these new emerging technologies come out, they're going to play right into the hand of the existing tech monopolies. And obviously, you know, it's, it's, you can see it already happening where, you know, Google and Microsoft are buying up and investing in heavily into AI technology. Uh, Microsoft, obviously, with their ten billion grant into OpenAI, which actually creates ChatGPT, which is why I asked if Bill Gates, I asked ChatGPT if Bill Gates was actually on Epstein's island, and it, it didn't give me a response. So I think that that's clear evidence. No, no, so I think that <laughs> hey, come on, future, we don't want to get um, we don't want to get sued here. Defamation. Yeah, but, but this is why I think that um, I, I tend to kind of be on that side of the middle that says that this invention and this investment will ultimately imbalance society really, really heavily, right? We're under this impression that it is an open AI, but really that's not true. Um, I don't think this is going to consolidate immeasurable wealth and power into the hands of few um, and displace a lot of people, right? And we can talk about taxes and whatever it would be, but there needs to be a plan for that. I see it as a challenge of AI alignment, right? And we talk about this a lot. And when you look at the amount of money spent on alignment versus the capability, they are greatly outmatched, right? And for our listeners, alignment is a term in AI that essentially means that when we build these intelligent systems, um, no matter how weak or strong or whether it's a general intelligence system, alignment refers to the fact that they are aligned with, in a very broad sense, human interests, that they are going to be good. The classic iRobot, you know, they don't hurt humans. They're, They're aligned with our goals of equity and respect for humanity and and discrimination, when it's truly out of the bottle, when we truly get to that next level of AGI, general intelligence, it becomes like Age of Ultron, where overnight it breaks out of the box that we've made for it. It learns at an exponential rate, and then it's too late to design these systems, these protections, this alignment. You've blown your chance for that because it's jumped from the Petri dish faster than COVID jumped from a Wuhan lab into a... No, I'm kidding. It's truly Pandora's box, right? Let me just put it out there that, you know, we've got one of the founding investors of ChatGPT, um, along with a couple of hundred other influential people in this space, calling for a halt for any future development and capabilities till we review alignment. And so, of course, I'm talking about Elon Musk here, but there are a range of other influential people I'm trying to call out this risk um, and the ethics behind this and, and, the, and what it would do to society. So I'd like to explore that part together. Yeah, I'll just like to add the open letter that the person that who shall not be named, but well, you've given him a name, I refuse to take refuse to take his name. I've got personal grievings, but whatever. <laughs> hey, just because the Tesla broke down, uh... is the same guy who's now secretly announced uh, um, that he's also developing a ChatGPT competitor. But going back to the questions, there were others as well. So you're right; like they've they've raised some important questions. Is automation the means to an end? Do we risk losing control of our civilization? What if the AI becomes sentient? You know, will it kill us? I agree that the AI has depicted some 
some of those emergent capabilities that I was talking about, like teaching itself a new language. And to a very large extent, you know, there was a paper as well that was produced by the ChatGPT uh, researchers uh, and Microsoft that showed that GPT-4 actually was getting or showing sparks of artificial general intelligence. But to the question of existential risks, I mean, my view is that, look, hang on a second. Of course, a rogue AI can do lots of rogue things. But all of this, in a way, speculation, it's guesswork. And if we talk about guesswork, let's bring probabilities in place. So there was a survey of AI research experts in 2022 when GPT-2, 2.2, something like that came out. And, you know, there's a lot of people, these people who've actually worked on these technologies. The median researcher said that there is probably a 5% risk of AI's impact being extremely bad, like extinction level events, right? So the question is, is that something we should prepare for right now by halting its development and the benefits it can deliver? Of course not. I mean, the genie's well, out of the hey, But hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. If there's a 5% probability that research into something will destroy us. 5% risk of AI basically destroying the planet. That's a pretty compelling reason to stop research into that topic, right? That's In fact, that's higher than I what I would have thought it would have been. That's pretty significant, isn't it? So, I think probability can fool a lot of people. Like, no, no, but you've got to stay in the game, right? If you're at a casino and you face odds, right? Yeah, that's gra- those are great odds, right? But not if you're a 5% chance of losing everything. You you, you don't get to go home. You're, you're gone. I don't know the, the nature of the survey you're talking about, but that, <laughs> that does seem quite high to me it, and, and not one to, to say, oh, well, it's it's not a problem, right? Well, that's the thing. Like it's, I mean, probabilities are pretty hard for people to understand. Like, it's just very, they're just very hard to visualize. I mean, I've got a high up probability of, uh, you know, um, uh, potentially driving and, and dying in a car accident. And it's like... Well, you don't have a 5% chance of dying in a car accident. There's the probabilities. Yeah, you can. And then... Well, you, you up, can, but it's lower than 5%. Oh, it depends where you drive as well, right? True. <laughs> but, <laughs> no, no, but, 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 but I mean, like... What I'm trying to say is people, people, look... Uh, well, we, we, we're, we're forced, we're compelled to wear seatbelts in cars for a risk much lower than 5%. That is true. I agree. But on the same token, even if you think the risk is pretty high, which I would, I argue is actually not. The other side of the story, which is what you were kind of arguing in favor of uh, earlier, Andy, was that do we hold the development and the many benefits such a, you know, transformative technology can deliver? And in any case, the genie is out of the bottle now. So what's the best course of action? And this kind of brings me back to you know, what I was saying before, you need regulation, but the boring kind, we do need to, as a starting point, address the issues of bias, privacy, intellectual property, actually, uh, was one of the biggest challenges that's coming out of it. I mean, whose work is uh, ChatGPT or, you know, a mid-journey copying from? Basically from all of us, you know, who does it belong to? Like, you know, there is currently a court case against stable diffusion and mid-journey because a lot of artists have said it was their art that was used to train these models. And now people are regenerating new art and they can see elements of their work into those you know, new creations. This reminds me of music, right? You know, there's only so many ways you can string together three chords, right? Yeah. Now, I know this is a little bit different because it, it literally only exists because it's gone and effectively co-opted what's previously existed. But, you know, with music, so, I mean, Oasis as a band, right, a lot of people would say they're derivative of the Beatles, right? There's no doubt that Oasis sounds like the Beatles because Oasis 
listened to a lot of the Beatles growing up, right? But yeah, I, I know with some of these images, right? Haven't there been instances where the um, the signature yep. sign their painting and <laughs> and th- and then that's showed up on um, some of these you know generated art. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you're you're right in saying that you know when you give that um, uh, Beatles example and the Oasis example, like look, all innovation in a way, there there've only been a very few genuine groundbreaking innovations that haven't relied on any past knowledge. Most of the innovation is kind of incremental. Can I um can I pivot the conversation now a little bit? I really want to talk about. An item for our, you know, a lot of our listeners, like all of us, are parents, right? And they're grappling with how this technology then influences their kids, and especially in education and in schools, right? And regulation in terms of there have been recently, uh, even in the last few weeks, the banning of ChatGPT in some of our states and others, um, I believe, have chosen to hand it, handle it independently. And we may have an environment where it's some of our school age kids have access to this kind of technology and some don't. And the quote that comes to mind to me is really that um, that one that goes, whatever happens, we've got the Maxim machine gun and they have not. And I just wonder what your thoughts are on the imbalances that this may cause and how schools, are going to, which are notoriously slow to adapt curriculum and, and teaching practices, will fare in this manner. Humans and especially kids, have the ability to internalize a lot of the shocks. And yes, they're impacted by them, but they're also a product of that flux, right? So they're far more adaptive than we give them credit for. We just think of of them as these kind of little helpless humans who need our support and can't survive without us. And that might be true, you know, in some circumstances, but, you know, ultimately we learn more from them quite often, right, as parents. And I don't know if you've got kids, Roger, but I know Andy does. And, uh, you know, we, we, we learn from them more than we teach them to an extent. So I'm a bit more relaxed about how they will handle the technology. The education system on the other side, the thing that you were referring to, you know, what do the teachers do? And of course, you know, the technologies that are currently assisting and supporting people in oh, and kids as well. Uh, to transition to those jobs of the future. I mean, the education system still hasn't done enough to actually change itself. And maybe this is the trigger it needs, right? To disrupt itself, you know, focus more on personalized learning. We have the world's best minds training these algorithms to basically predict very accurately what is the next movie I would like to watch on Netflix. But at the same time, for one of the biggest decision that same child who's been now shown what movie he or she should watch on Netflix. At the same time, one of the biggest decisions that child will make in his or her lifetime is when they get to uh, high school. Should I take advanced maths or something else? I thought you were going to say their biggest decision would be whether they choose the Apple ecosystem or the Samsung. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I think some of the decisions you make at that early stage do determine, like those choices that you make can have big implications for, for your future. It's kind of like that butterfly effect, right? You know, you make the choice now and then you look back and you say, oh, I wish I did that. But you just didn't have that information. Only the shitty guidance counselor on the fifth floor, right? So essentially, if you can use those tools and turn them around to find ways to deliver a new model of education, well, bring it on, I'd say, right? And, and you know, we're actually just reflecting on our high school and how terrible 
our careers counselor was. So if you replaced her with a talking box powered by <laughs> chat GPT, you know, I'd be a different man right now. So um, it got me thinking too, this idea of, uh, like you said, I, I believe kids are adaptable. I, it's more the teachers I'm worried about and the curriculum and the mm. system adapting to give them something meaningful, right? Like the last thing that you want is persisting through a, a fumbled kind of curriculum that doesn't respond to these challenges and doesn't adapt. And that's that's more my fear. But it's I mean it's even worse than that though, Roger. I mean the conversation now is that they're just banned, right? Yeah. Like you yeah. can't even access them in schools. Uh, Nick, you mentioned before around prompt engineers. You know, like we, how are we going to train our um, next generation of prompt engineers if we don't even allow them to use them in school? It's a little bit like the calculator, isn't it? Yeah, although like you know, it's, it's a bit of a ironical one that that career because um, apparently the next thing that ChatGPT would do is to create better prompts to ask itself. So the prompt engineering job could just be a very short. Oh, we may as well <laughs> just go jump off a bridge now. <laughs> but no, not, not unless ChatGPT tells me to do it first, right? I'm not, I'm not some kind of lemming, right? First, need, you've got to apply talcum powder on your balls. I need the proof. Yeah. Um, I mean, someone actually told ChatGPT to give itself better prompts to address like a big, bigger challenge, and it did. So it kept on, you know, going through that loop where uh, it will ask itself a question to get information and ask a follow-up question. And actually did it better than a human could have done to get that same answer. So there you so go. Here's, here's a thought experiment for you, right? Because I mean, ChatGPT. I mean, the theory is it doesn't think, right? It's just it yeah. just it does these. Yeah, we were talking about regressions and stuff. It isn't sentient yet, right? And but what if it was? Imagine it was sentient. What if? Imagine like some magical ingredient. It became sentient, and um, it just it's just getting us. It's luring us to trust it a little bit more. You mentioned trust earlier. Just yeah. luring us to kind of think it's a little bit not good enough. But it turns out like this is all part of some grand plan to have us apply ChatGPT into more and more settings and it'll infiltrate us and destroy the planet. It's like we never watched Terminator Judgment Day. Seriously. <laughs> it's oh. like how long have we have we known? Um, <laughs> you know. And I think that's the thing. There is um if it has escaped the box, if it has understood that there's a ghost in the machine, so to speak, we it would deceive us. Would it? Right, because, well, this is the thing, right? The, the, the assumption here, the thought experiment is that you are dealing with an entity that is a lot smarter than you. And when you go to, go to battle with, a, with an entity that's a lot smarter than you, you know, multiples, you won't be able to, like there, there is only one outcome and that is that you will lose, right? You will not is it be able to play on the level. Yeah, that's, that's, I think this is, it's a, it is a very interesting thought experiment. But when you say it is smarter than us, I don't necessarily know whether that's true or not. Um, no, I think it's my, my, my comment is not, it is smarter than us. It is, is it? when it is smarter than us. And I think that's the part that I think is becoming a little bit more of the threat. It's not, it's not an if, it's not GPT and a number, it's mm -hmm. when, it's when. when. Yep. And when that takeoff happens for a model that can actually get to that trajectory. Yeah, and look, you know, you're, by all means, you're right. Like, you know, if you're looking at a um, an exponential scale, you know, of uh, knowledge gain, you know, you're probably right. You know, it might not be, that singularity uh, might not be that far away. But on the same token, like, let's break down the problem first. Um, there is a question of whether it actually knows what it's doing. And then there's a question of what will it do? So the first part of the question, whether it actually knows what it's doing, when it actually becomes self-aware, I I don't know. I'm um, look. I'm I'm not entirely sure because 
um, again, isn't it that by definition we we couldn't possibly comprehend? Like, I mean, it's a bit like consciousness, right? It's one of these like problems we can't understand truly ever. Like, there's just no basis. Like, isn't that isn't it kind of in that category where us saying now whether it knows what it's doing or like we we can't like really we're talking about something that we're not yet geared to understand. So um, no, but I mean it it. it- at the fundamental level i mean the, when i was trying to explain to you how it worked a little bit it's well that's one model right yeah. that's one methodology through which i mean you mentioned that ai is like this umbrella term for lots of different approaches to the to the problem right but once we have the singularity or whatever really what we're talking about is a completely different thing and it might even be that um you know chat gpt or whatever systems underpinning it is the thing that gets us to that new methodology is that we don't we couldn't understand because um it doesn't exist yet and we have certainly not haven't created it um so we, we we can't really understand how something that doesn't yet exist that we couldn't even get our heads around will work it's just too out of our depths of human understanding isn't it it's the imitation game right the emergence aspect of this what can it do that we haven't taught it right um and that's this whole thing of moving towards agi and the general intelligence that you know like you said it can teach itself thrive and develop capabilities it wasn't initially intended for and i think that's the part where this idea of takeoff and exponential learning really matters but the, the point that i was trying to make was that if the ai is basically a mirror image of humanity as a whole you know i tend to think that with all of the biases mostly bad but a lot of it actually good as well the chance of it actually destroying the whole planet or you know seizing control and turning us into slaves um you know all mat- matrix or terminator but no no the first thing it's going to do is develop uh, a time machine and then uh <laughs> yeah or, or, or and, and transport us to the uh, the nearest black hole Is that what you said? Well, it's probably going to be something more mundane, like um, you know, like the um, the the Nick Bostrom uh, paperclip machine uh, uh, <laughs> thought experiment that um, you know, mm. someone someone puts in that oh, well, we we'll use AI to um to make paperclips, and the AI goes and <laughs> develop basically resource um mining from the whole universe to make just uh you know as many paperclips as possible. See, this yeah. is the bit that I think Hollywood always gets wrong. It always thinks that a sentient AGI is going to take an objective given by man yeah. and run that to the extreme potential to to kill all humans or in some perverted perverse way. Yeah. I actually think it's going to do when you say what is it going to do? I think it does what we do. What do you do when you gain enough self-awareness and consciousness? You try to work out what the meaning of life is and what your purpose is. And I actually think that's where it'll go wrong. This AI will wake up one day and have a midlife crisis, try to figure out the meaning of life, find out there's actually meaningless and it has to prescribe its own meaning, freak out, and then the myriad of things that we rely on it for, it'll stop doing. Which is kind of what happens to us at a certain age. And that's when things will go wrong. So everything will stop at a different level, you know. It could find when it gets to the point, it could find that the answer to life, the universe and everything is just 42, right? I mean, <laughs> how do we know? This is this is kind of my question. We are creatures. Going back to how we have thrived and survived is we have also along with, you know, getting very lucky that a meteor wiped out the dinosaurs, right? We took risks as humanity. And we and had bigger clubs, right? Did we? The Neanderthals had bigger. Oh, I don't actually know you're right. Yes. Yes, yeah, we did. 
But we will. Someone drop that uh, smartphone back in the time machine. (laughs) So, Nick, uh, thank you very much for being generous with your time today and coming on the pod. Uh, It's certainly an interesting conversation about AI and hopefully we'll all have a job to uh, go next week. Thank you very much for inviting me on the pod. I I can say that I'm no longer a pod virgin. We popped your cherry. (laughs) (laughs) You guys do, yes. Um, And, uh, yeah, it was a a great experience. I mean... uh, 